Hello, good morning. Welcome to our O'Core Cafe part two. It's great to have you all here. Again, we've had a, a good morning so far, and I've really enjoyed chatting with our, our guest this morning, who is Samara Levy. And she's come up from Brighton today to be with us. And she's going to be sharing her story of her time helping the people of Syria and a, an aid appeal that she has started. And over the last seven or eight years or so, she's been sending all sorts of goods, clothing, things that will help people of Syria who have faced a war zone for the last uh, 10 years or so or more. So it's a real joy to have her with us this morning. Thank you for, for coming as well. And hello if you're looking at, at us online and, and joining us via YouTube. It's great that you can tune in as well. The plan this morning is that I'm going to show you a short video in a moment just to give us a bit of, a, bit of context about Syria and what's happened out there. Then I'll invite Samara to come and join us and we'll have a chat for about half an hour or so. And then there'll be a chance for yourselves to ask any questions you like. And there's a, a code that you can go to on your smartphone if you've got one, slido forward slash Samara. And uh, if you just search for her name on Slido, then you can type in any question you like. And hopefully after we've had a chat, we'll then be able to field some of your questions to her as well. So do have a think about that as we're going along. We've also got Amy Ledger this morning, who's going to sing us a song. And really, really looking forward to that a bit later on, just to, to break the morning up a little bit. So thank you for joining with us. And uh, we're really looking forward to just exploring a bit more about how God has led Samara to show love and the love of Jesus to the people of Syria. So here's a little video just uh, to give us a bit of context for what's been happening out in Syria and perhaps for some of the children and those in schools and how they have been affected by what has been a war zone for a very long time. So let's watch this video and then I'll invite Samara up to the stage. Well, I found that really moving again just to watch what it's like for the children of Syria. Many of the children here this morning have started school again these last few weeks. Imagine going back to a place like that and that was your school and your home and the things you've experienced. Samara's going to come and join us now, and she's going to tell us about some of the, the people she's met out in Syria. So please give a warm welcome to Samara this morning. Hi. Have a seat. Hi, Samara. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been Thank you. a really good morning so far, and I'm looking forward to, to talking with you some more now. Just that's so moving, that video there, seeing those children the devastation of the buildings, the schools, and, and the stories of their lives and their families who have been impacted by this war. Yeah. Wow. Can you, can you just give maybe a bit of, bit of context to this, the story of Syria, what's happened there the last 10 years or so? So Syria has been a country affected by war for nearly 10 years now, um, and it has produced the, according to the UN, the largest displacement and refugee crisis and humanitarian crisis of our time. Um, so, my journey with it started about six years ago, um, and I think we'll, mm. you have some questions about that. Yeah, it did. So, we saw those videos. We've, maybe, perhaps some of us will remember the stories on the news all the time of, of ISIS coming through Syria and Iraq and destroying whole areas. And when you saw those videos, you were inspired to help. You know, you saw children with, with nothing... To, to wear no, no shoes on their feet, left their homes that have been ruined, family members have been lost. What, what led you to want to help, and, and how did you come about helping these children? For me, I suppose I come from the place of being a mum and having small children. When my youngest was very small, still very small, before he could really walk properly, 
I became aware that there were mums raising their children in very difficult, very different conditions. Um, women who had fled from ISIS in Syria, and they were living in camps, and their children in the snow had little more than flip-flops and summer clothes to put on. And I just remember being deeply distressed by the fact that it was possible in this world for them to live like that while we're living the way we live here. And I felt so challenged personally. And I, I felt, you know, actually, we, we've allowed that to happen. We, we've, we've let this happen if we're living like this while they're living like that. Jesus called us to share what we have. And, you know, there are many aspects of theology that can be debated or, or questioned. And someone might take one view and someone might take another. But this is the black and white stuff. It's, the, in, it's, it's not controversial at all. It's just share if you have with those who don't. And I was really challenged by those passages and, you know, praying, asking God, how do I, how do I apply that? in my life to this situation. Mm. So you decided to start collecting clothes and, and aid to send out there. Tell us, that's, that's an amazing story how this all began when God just said to you, start collecting. And tell, tell us how that, that happened. So having seen this, you know, the, these images of people living in these camps and felt personally so challenged, I, I remember just praying, saying, Lord, what do I do? How do I share? I mean, they're there and I'm here. How do I share? And a few days later, my mom showed me some blankets that she'd been knitting, and she said they were for the Syrian children, and she was going to send them out to Syria. And I said, wow, that's amazing. I've been thinking about this. I, I need to know where you're sending them. I got an address for an NGO, and I searched our house and packaged up everything that I could, and I had to send these small packages that weighed less than two kilos. And, you know, they, they accepted the packages I sent, but once I'd done that, I felt that it wasn't enough. Um, and that there must also be a more cost-effective, more time-effective way of, of doing it than wrapping up these little packages and making sure they don't weigh too much. And each one was quite expensive to send. And I remember having this idea of a lorry going around in my head and um, just praying and saying to God, you know, what do, I, what do I need to do to make this happen? And he just said, start collecting. And I didn't particularly like the idea because... I'm a bit of a control freak, and I like to have everything planned out. I like to know the details. And on the other hand, he was saying, I just want you to step out in faith and, and trust me. I didn't like the idea, so I left it for a few months. And then a few months later, I prayed about it and um, feeling I really needed to do something to respond to this. And again, he just said, start collecting. And then a few more months passed by, and that summer I saw... What was happening in northern Iraq, that became more prominent. And, you know, hundreds of thousands of people were fleeing from ISIS. And I, um, I just felt there's, there's got to be something that I could do to, to help these people. Well, actually, no, I think really more. I was saying I really don't know what I could do, actually. But I said to God, if there's anything I can do, if there's anything, then I'm willing to do it. Whatever it costs me, whatever it takes for me, I'm, I'm willing. But I'm here, I've got two young children. You know, what, what do I really have to offer? And he said, start collecting again. And um, yeah, I'm a bit slow sometimes to, <laughs> to catch on. But it was the middle of August and it was summer and I'd always had this feeling about winter clothes and winter shoes. And I just felt that in that moment, he, he spoke to me without words, but just put this 
assurance in my heart that if I was willing to step out in faith and trust him and just start collecting without knowing the details, without knowing where it was going, how it was getting there, who was paying for it, that he would open all the right doors at all the right times and provide everything that was needed. And um, I also felt he showed me that in the time it takes you to collect all this stuff, get it together and get it out there to northern Iraq, which is where the first one went, um, you know, it will be the right time then. It will arrive in time for winter. So that, that was kind of the, the beginning of it. And then the next stage, um, I started to collect, and I, I'd put together then, you know, the control freak in me had put together this project plan of how I was going to do it and, you know, how many weeks I needed to collect for, how many weeks we needed to sort for, then when we should send it off so it would arrive in time. We needed to raise six and a half thousand pounds. Um, and I remember in a very blasé way saying to my vicar, oh, you know, 90 cubic meters, that's what it takes to fill an articulated lorry. Um, that'll be the easy bit. The hard bit will be raising six and a half thousand pounds because I've never raised anything like that before. And actually, I was so wrong. <laughs> it was so, it was, it was one of those um, uh, just personally challenging times and I learned so much through it. We kind of got to the stage where I felt we would be on track to raise this six and a half thousand pounds, but I set aside six weeks for collecting all the clothes, and it had taken me four weeks to collect somewhere between one and two cubic meters, and it suddenly dawned on me one day in the little storage unit that we had um, that I'd, I'd measured the walls and the dimensions of the room, and I knew that once we got up to about 1.6, 1.7 meters high, and we filled it wall to wall, front to back, then we would have 90 cubic meters. Um, and I realized with just two weeks until my deadline, having collected for four weeks, I'd only managed to get one to two cubic meters. And I just remember feeling utterly deflated, thinking this is absolutely impossible. There's no way in two weeks I'm going to be able to collect 88 cubic meters. It's just not going to happen. And I remember doing the only thing that I could. I had my youngest son on my hip and put my other hand on the few boxes that we had. And I remember saying from a very humble place, Lord, if you can feed 2, 000, sorry, 5,000 with two fish and five loaves of bread, then Lord, would you just fill this room, not because I feel completely humiliated, which I do, but because I, I'm really worried about these people. How are they going to get through winter without all this stuff? And I just said, Lord, would you just send a flood of clothes? Will you just send a deluge of clothes? I just want to be overwhelmed by clothes. And what happened in that two weeks that followed was nothing short of a miracle. I was utterly swamped. I was overwhelmed with clothes that just came in from places I couldn't have even imagined existed. It just people kept ringing me, bringing stuff in. Our house was floor to ceiling with bags. And then in the lounge, floor to ceiling with boxes, ready to go up to the storage unit. My husband had nowhere to sit to watch the TV in the evening. He was sort of squeezing in between the boxes. And there was stuff piled up in the hallways. And one day, this transit van turned up outside my house. And my mum was there helping to look after my youngest. And she just said, Samara, look, tell them to go away. There's nowhere in this house to store anything anymore. But it was really incredible. It, if there if there was a clothing equivalent of the feeding of the 5,000, then that was it. Um, and we sent off the lorry. In the end, two and a half weeks early, we raised an extra 1,000 pounds, and we had a whole room full of things. Um, and, and actually, just another little detail is that um, after we packed off that lorry to Iraq, I remember praying with our home group. We prayed that God would 
work another miracle that he would multiply that lorry so there would be enough for thousands and thousands of people. And it's so interesting because when I look back over the years, I realize that is exactly what has happened. But it didn't happen there in that lorry. It happened here in the UK because after that lorry, I felt I can't stop. I need to go again. And we started again. And churches from all over the UK and schools from all over the UK started to get involved. Um, and over the course of the years that followed, we sent 110 of these lorries and 40-foot shipping containers. And um, we've clothed, we, we've sent, we've given aid to about half a million people. Um, we've raised more than two million pounds now, which we've been using also to provide medical care and field hospitals, and we're aiming to build a bigger hospital. So it, it's really grown into something so much bigger. It's incredible. It's it really is an amazing story, and you wrote a book about it, which you might be able to get a copy of it later on if you'd like to today, about rebuilding the ruins. And I've read it through, and I, I love it, because you just explore the way God has been so faithful to you, and from what was a very small step of obedience, to just the way that he's used you to do some really incredible things. And it's all to God's glory, isn't it, how he has, has done this work through you. So not only have you been sending out aid, and you've been, you just mentioned as well that you've been helping set up these health clinics and, and field hospitals out in Syria. Have you been to Syria yourself, and have you seen these things firsthand? And what's it like when you step into that country and see, see these things for yourself? It's a different world. It, it really is like stepping into a different world culturally, um, and obviously parts of the country, not all of it, but parts of the country are really very damaged and destroyed. Um, it's a fascinating experience. I mean, from our lives here in the UK, there's just so much that's different. Um, and I love the culture. I mean, you know, the, the culture in Syria, the community, they have, I, um, I don't know how to explain it, but here in the UK, I feel we've become very cynical, actually. Um, and even in spite of what they've been through in Syria, I still feel this sort of purity of heart that these people have. They're very innocent in, in many ways. Um, you know, they don't have um, all these chain restaurants and fast food places across the country. You just don't see that. You don't see big branding everywhere you go. You don't see big advertising everywhere you go. It's, it's very different in that respect. And, and so from that perspective, I feel it's, it's quite an unspoilt country. Um, that's part of the beauty of it. And I hope that that doesn't change as it gets rebuilt. Um, mm. But um, it's taught me a lot. I've learned a lot mm. from, from Syria and the Syrian people. In, in your book, you, uh, you mentioned um, a, a grandma that you met out there one time who was looking after some of her grandchildren. And um, she had lost her son who was killed through the war. Can you just tell us maybe a bit more about her story and, and you know, the sort of people you've met out there? Yeah, so that particular family um, was in Aleppo, and actually they were living in um, East Aleppo, in Hanano, which was one of the areas which had been under siege um, for a number of years. And we had been distributing aid to lots of families in that area who um, either they'd remained when the siege was broken um, and everyone else, um, a lot of the people who'd been controlling that area moved out or were evacuated out or they had moved back um, 
from the other places that they'd been displaced to. They'd moved back to their homes. And some of the people, they got back in their home was destroyed, so they moved into a neighbor's home, you know, because there was nowhere else for them to go. But this particular widow, I just, I remember, just, I, I just felt the weight of her heart as she told us how her son had been killed. Um, and she was left with three children to take care of three girls. And when we first arrived, I didn't actually recognize that they were girls because their hair had been cropped so short. Um, and that's, that's not, I guess that's not normal necessarily in, in any culture, but certainly in Syria, um, you know, a girl, her long hair would be her, her pride. And um, so I, at first I didn't realize, I thought, why are these, you know, they, they, they were dressing up with handbags or they, they, I don't know where they'd got them from but um and I thought well, this is funny I wouldn't have <laughs> anyway we got there and she she said that they'd been suffering from head lice um she really was struggling to cope with raising three children on her own I mean I have to say as someone who's younger raising two children with a husband it's really hard work and I'm sure many of you will relate to that it's 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 exhausting at times and this poor older woman who doesn't have a job or an income herself is trying to raise these three children on her own and she just cropped their hair because she couldn't deal with the head lice the recurrent head lice and she couldn't get rid of them and she I remember as she was telling us of the struggles that they faced she she told us how her daughter-in-law, the, the wife, the mother, the wife of her son, the mother of these three girls, um, had left the children behind. Um, and this is something that I've seen actually so often in some of the very conservative um, Sunni Muslim communities, it's in the more conservative communities, um, where when the husband um, is killed or dies, the family of the widow pressure her or, or arrange for her to then get married again because she then sort of falls back to the responsibility of her her parents um, and so they maybe pressure her to remarry but she can't remarry with those children so she has to leave them behind and they usually um, will get left with the um, the grandmother of the, um, the the deceased man so um, this woman was struggling because I think it had been a number of years since her son was killed and the children had not seen or heard word from their mother at all in that time and she was apparently still living there in the same city but she doesn't call, she doesn't visit and I guess maybe that's the easiest way for her and maybe even for the children too to just pretend as though they almost don't exist mm. um, but it's really, that for me as a mother has been one of the truly heartbreaking things to see that, you know, not only do they have the pain of the loss of a son or a, um, a husband or a father, but then they, they lose their mother uh, as well. Mm. Well, it's such a sad story. I, as I read through the book myself, I, I welled up several times as I was reading it, just because the things you described there, and even then, you've probably been quite restrained in what you're writing. Just heartbreaking, you know, the families the pain and the suffering that you had seen. Unbelievable, really. We, we can't even comprehend, I don't think, fully without having been there. But then you, know, you come back to the UK. You've been out to Syria several times now, and you've, you've met these folk. What's it like when you come back home here, and you know, we've got a nice big building, we've got warm homes, we've got lovely clothes to wear, we've got restaurants we can go visit and experiences we can have. You know, is there a bit of dissonance as you come back to 
the, the West, as it were, and how do you cope with that? Yeah, it is actually really difficult. Um, when, when you've seen the reality of life for these people, and that it's just, you know, they're innocent victims in, in all of this. It's extraordinarily difficult, actually, to come back and try and settle back into, you know, and I, I, I live a very privileged life, an extraordinary you know, the community that surround us, my children go to school, there are a lot of wealthy families, you know, we are very well off as a family. I, I, it, I really struggle. And, and actually, interestingly, that, that's kind of how this book was born. Um, I think, I can't remember if it was 2017, I think it was maybe 2018, actually, I was in Syria um, that May. I think it was like maybe my second night um, in Syria. I was there under this huge rocket attack um, in Damascus, and it was perhaps the most terrifying night of my life. Um, you know, I'd just gone to sleep, and I woke up thinking, you know, why have I woken up? I'm so exhausted. I didn't sleep properly the night before. I'm really tired. I I've barely been asleep for any time. Why am I awake? I looked at the clock, and I'd been asleep for about half an hour, and that would never normally happen. And then I heard an explosion, which sounded like it was in the distance. And I thought, oh, maybe, maybe that's why I woke up. Maybe there was an explosion. And then they got louder and louder to the point where I could see things flying across the sky. And I realized after a while that they were the sort of anti-missile um, fire. And I was like trying to hide in the bathroom because I could see things coming. And some of them were so close that the explosions, the flashes actually lit up the hotel room that I was in on that night. And... It was an extraordinarily terrifying experience, and I just found myself thinking, gosh, you know, how... I suddenly understood why these families flee with nothing, because it is utterly terrifying, and you don't think in a rational, normal way. And, and then, after this experience, it took me a couple of days to kind of try and reorientate myself after that. And then, you know, I spent a lot of time in Derazor with, you know, visiting children whose both parents had been killed by ISIS, and, you know, really... It, it was a really emotionally um, challenging uh, trip, probably one of the most challenging trips that I've had. And I remember, I remember coming back and just thinking, how do I get on with life again now? How do I refocus on what I'm supposed to be doing? I know that there's so much work I need to do for what we're doing in Syria. But I remember for a few days afterwards just feeling very tearful and emotional and thinking, I don't I can't focus, actually. My brain just can't focus on anything. And I'd known for a number of years that I needed to write a book one day. I, I knew that was part of the agenda. That was part of the plan. It's something I need to do. But I've always also had this sense of it's not the right time just yet. There's more that's going to happen that you're going to write about. Um, and I remember one day, rather tearfully, standing in my kitchen saying to God, I don't know what to do with myself right now. I can't focus on anything. I know there's lots I need to do. But what can I do that is going to be useful? And I just felt, he said to me, I want you to write that book now. And I thought it was like a breath of fresh air. I just thought, oh, that would be nice. I like writing. I enjoy it. And it's actually really cathartic. It's very healing. Um, and I just literally, it was just so nice to feel that I had the permission to step away from all the other work and sit down and write for a while. And I think in three weeks, the first nine chapters poured out and I mm. talked about my experience in Damascus under rocket attack and some of the other families that I've met and how it all started. And yeah, after a couple of days, you know, recapping over all the amazing events in the first appeals, um, I felt on top of the world again. So it was a really mm. um, good experience actually writing it all down. Mm. Well. Yeah, it's a, great, it's a great read. And 
your faith really comes through the book. You know, that is very central to why you do what you do. And can you maybe just explain to us, you know, about what is it that God has been doing in your heart through this whole process and, and why you have been called to, to help the people of Syria? Yeah. I think um, through this process, God is teaching me day by day how to love more. And I think there's always room for improvement, even if, you know, even if others look in and think, oh, well, you know, surely you're, you're doing a good job. But actually, no, we've all still got a lot of room for improvement there. And um, so, yeah, it's about learning to love. It's about learning actually how to live faith. Because before I started this journey, my faith was smaller and it was more theoretical rather than applied, I suppose. And through stepping out in faith, through starting to collect without knowing where it was going, how it was getting there, who's paying for it, through taking these steps, not knowing what I'm going to find, you know, it's like you walk by faith and not by sight, as it says in Corinthians. You walk, you pick up your foot and you start to take a step not knowing what you're going to land on, whether there's going to be something there for you to put your foot on when, when you get... And that's very much what this journey has been like, not just with the first lorry, but with so many different aspects of our work, with starting to... with committing publicly to the fact that, yeah, we're, we're going to build a hospital in Syria. You know, they've lost two-thirds of their hospital capacity in Syria, or their, no, of their actual hospital provision in Syria. You know, they've, they've lost that. It needs to be rebuilt. And to actually commit to saying, we're going we're gonna to build a hospital. You know, that's going to cost millions. We, we're going to do this, though, because we feel that's what God is calling us to do. And it's a real step of faith to publicly say, we're going to do that, <laughs> you know, when you've raised only a fraction um, historically compared with what you need to raise in order to mm. actually do that. So it, they're big steps of faith. And yet, along the way, God rewards us with amazing, incredible answers to prayer, like someone just appearing out of nowhere and offering to give what, with gift aid, turns out to be more than £200,000. I mean, you know, these, these incredible things that happen mm. along the way to in, encourage. And the issue is that we have to, our faith grows as we walk. It grows as we take those steps. It grows as we walk by faith and not by sight. Mm. That's, that's amazing. There's some great stories of how God has provided along the way, hasn't he? Tell us more about your faith. What, how, do you, how did you come to the trust in Jesus yourself? Yeah, so that's been a gradual journey as well. And there have been various phases. And, you know, the first seven or so years of my life, I, I, I didn't go to church. Um, my mum and I sometimes used to say grace before a meal. She came from a background of faith, but she lost her faith really um, in her early adult life. Um, she'd had quite a difficult time, and I often used to see the church at the end of our road and think, gosh, that looks really fascinating. I'd love to go in there one day and know what goes on in there. And um, she never wanted to take me, though, but I remember I went to a church school, and the priest used to come in and tell stories that I always found really fascinating. Um, then my mum remarried when I was about seven, seven or eight, and um, my stepfather was part of a church, so I, I would go along too, and, and my stepsister as well. And I loved it. I really loved it. It was, you know, quite a sort of um, modern, I suppose, evangelical church, and I really, really loved it. 
But then as a teenager, you know, with family breakup, again, I, I lost my faith and I really rejected God. Actually, I, I just didn't want anything to do with God. Um, and they were probably some of the bleakest years, actually, of my life when I rejected God. But then in my early 20s, I started kind of coming back and, you know, I did an alpha course and I started to read the Bible again and I started to go to church. And then I, I drifted away so just didn't feel quite settled at that church. Um, and then, again, I think really my, my faith really took root when my youngest son was a baby and I suddenly felt as if God just snapped his fingers and said, right, Samara, enough mucking around now. It's time. I've got a plan for you and you need to get on with it. Um, and yeah, it's just fascinating. I, I started reading a couple of books that Christians who had done some incredible things had done. Um, and I was fascinated and challenged and I started reading the Bible for the first time in many years. I started reading Matthew's gospel. And I remember weeping over it thinking, wow, my life looks nothing like this. You know, this, this life that Jesus calls us to, the challenges that he makes, my life looks nothing like that, but I want it to look like that. And um, I then found my church in Brighton, and it's grown from there. Mm. Wow, what a journey. And you're still on the journey. You know, God calls us to keep following him. And in the book, you, you talk about the dangerous places that we have in life sometimes. And, and for you, that's a very literal thing, because you have been called to some of the most dangerous places in the world. And yet, as Christians, God calls us to step out in, in faith, doesn't he, and to, into those dangerous places. And how, how do you find that, that journey itself about those acts of obedience when you, when you don't know what's coming and you don't know why? What is it about your, your faith that just helps you take those steps and encourages you to, to keep pressing into, that, into the darkness? I guess um, over this time, through exercising my faith, faith and through stepping out in faith, I've learned so much more about the character of God. And I've learned that when I am weak, he is strong. And I don't have to have all the answers. And I don't have to know what is coming next. And I don't have to know what the journey is going to look like in front of me. Because I know that he is good. And I know that whatever happens to me along the way, it's going to be working towards a bigger plan that is going to be part of building his kingdom. So I can have complete faith and complete confidence that no matter what happens, if I'm listening to his voice, and if I'm doing what he's calling me to do, no matter how irrational that may look to the rest of the world, how crazy, because I think, you know, God's way really does look crazy to a lot of people looking in. If you're following God's way, doing things his way, you know, his wisdom is foolishness to us and our wisdom is foolishness to him. Um, his ways are higher than our ways and he sees things that we don't see. And I suppose there was, um, well, there's so many stories I could tell to illustrate that, but one of them, I, I suppose, particularly was perhaps when we'd set up our first field hospital in Syria and um, one day my husband wanted to go on holiday and I sort of thought, yeah, it would be good for us to have some quality time together as a family. You know, my family have put up with a lot from me actually over the last few years. Um, and we, we went to, um, when we arrived, I mean, literally, I just stepped off the plane and switched on my phone and I had a message from our doctor in Syria saying, Samara, can I, I know I'm really sorry to bother you. I know you're on holiday, but would you just pray for us? Because um, where the hospital is, the area where the hospital is, has come under attack from ISIS, and they're dealing with a lot of injuries. Um, and I said, well, of course, you know, this is, this is, you know, bigger priority than a holiday. 
Um, the next morning, I spoke with him, and he told me how he had just evacuated another medical facility that he'd been running, you know, separate to the, the project that we were, were funding. Um, he'd just evacuated that one, and he told me how other entities working in the area had evacuated their premises. And I remember saying, well, are our team, are our team actually safe there? Do they, do they need to go? Do they need to be evacuated? And he said, I, I don't know. And to put it in context, he really knows what it is to lose members of his team to ISIS because previously, previously he had had um, a hospital in this area and when ISIS took this area previously, they had gone to the homes of, of some of their staff and killed them. Um, so he had lost members of his team before in this area to ISIS. So... He didn't know. He said, I just don't know. I don't know whether we need to evacuate or not because half the team are adamant that they are not going to leave because if they leave, there is no one else there to serve these people who are being injured and they're just, we're just leaving them for dead. He said, but then the other half of the team are actually really scared and they want to leave. The problem for us was that they were there because we'd sent them there. There weren't enough medical, medically qualified people in that area to be able to provide this level of service. So they'd... They had to be driven in um, from outside for a week. They would stay there for a week, and then they'd be driven out, um, and a new team would replace them. So they were there at our mercy, and we found ourselves juggling. Do we, do we evacuate them? Do we leave them there? And I remember saying to my husband, I'm really sorry, but I just can't go and eat lunch with all of you today. I need to, I need to be alone. I needed to pray, and I, I knew I needed to just withdraw and pray and ask God because I didn't know what to do and I could hear in his voice that our doctor didn't know what to do either I just remember getting on my knees in the hotel room just saying Lord I don't know what to do I don't know what to do these people's lives are at stake should they stay or should they go and I just remember taking my Bible in my hands and I was so desperate for God to just show me I just said look Lord if I just you can see the future I can't if I just look in the Bible, if I just close my eyes and open randomly, would you just show me something that has relevance in this situation, a passage that can be applied to this situation? And I found the pages and closed my eyes and I opened it and it opened at 2 Kings 25, which is where um, the Babylonians take the city of um, Jerusalem and they set fire to the temple and they kill some of God's people and they take the rest of God's people away as exiles. And as I read it, it just felt so... Um, symbolic to me. You know, the Babylonians symbolized ISIS. Jerusalem symbolized this area. Um, and the temple symbolized our little field hospital. And I just took a photo of the passage, sent it over to our doctor and said, look, I've just prayed for guidance. I've asked God, what should we do? This is the passage he's put in front of us. And this is what I think it means. And I think the team need to leave. And I'm just praying that they're going to get out in time. If you ask me afterwards why I would have said that, I, I, I couldn't have said, um, but I just felt, I don't know, that God was, was guiding me and leading me in that moment. Four minutes later, I got a message back from our doctor saying, the team are on the road. I told them all to just leave everything and go, if, take any patients if they want to leave too, but just leave now, take the small vehicles because, you know, um, it'll be more dangerous traveling in a bigger vehicle. And I wanted to breathe a sigh of relief, but when he reminded me about the fact that they needed to travel in small vehicles, I suddenly thought, oh my goodness, the road they have to travel on 
to get to a safe area, it's a road that's regularly targeted by snipers and jihadists, and they will shoot anything that's moving along that road. And I suddenly felt overwhelmed with, what have I done? What have I done? Oh, my goodness. I've just sent this team to their death. If ISIS are attacking this area, they'll be all over that road. And I just felt as if God spoke to me in that moment and just said, Samara, just worship. Just pray and worship. And I had heard it said before that worship is our most powerful weapon against the enemy, but I didn't really have any experience of that in my life um, at that point. And I just, I just sat there and I prayed and I worshipped. And I really felt he was saying worship in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, there was really something important about affirming the Holy Trinity. And, um, and so that's what I did for about half an hour. I just couldn't focus on anything else except just singing every song I could think of to do with the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit and praying. And after about half an hour, I felt as though something lifted. And... I suddenly thought, I, should, I, ought to, I ought to speak to our doctor. Gosh, we've been messaging, but I haven't actually spoken to him. Why didn't I call him? When I spoke with him, he said, this is half an hour later, he said, I, I've just been told ISIS just sealed off the road. And thank God, our team are on the correct side of that. They're not still behind the, the barrier. Um, and we just you know, carried on praying and talking. And after a while, we got notification that they'd arrived in a, a safer place. And... When they arrived and they called him, they just said, we don't know how we got here. It was dark. They had to drive through the desert. It was a cloudy night. There was no moon. There's no lights in the desert, by the way, if you've got no moonlight. Um, and they couldn't put the lights from the cars on either because that would make them like a moving target um, and very plainly showing where they are. So they'd fled in the dark. They'd seen other vehicles that had been attacked on the way, yet somehow they had got through. And this was like a mixed Christian and Muslim team, and they were all just thanking God at the other end because they said, we don't know how we got here. We just don't know how we got here safely. But I remember afterwards, after breathing a massive sigh of relief, thinking, thank God they're safe. I remember thinking, is this just all a false alarm. I mean, you know, ice is going to be pushed back and they could go back tomorrow and by then we will have lost this hospital because it will have been looted. There won't be any equipment left there. Have we just lost it? Have we just given up all this equipment in this hospital? But that evening I saw on the news, the international news, this area had been taken by ISIS and it was quite, I, I just remember having real goose pimples as I thought, wow, you know, we'd been half an hour later, that team would have lost their lives. They would have lost their lives. And God was so generous with us. He was so generous. The timing was just perfect, utterly perfect. And, um, you know, glory to God in the end, mm. it, it worked out okay for them. Wow. What a great story. Thank you for, for sharing that. There's so many more stories I'd love to better explore with you, but we're, we're running out of time now. If, um, if anyone would like to ask any questions, do, do put your questions into that Slido link should be up on the screen there, slido.com, and then search for Samara. And we'll, we'll come to those questions in a moment. But you've just been exploring and explaining to us you know, how God has worked through, through, through you. You are, you know, you're a stay-at-home mum, two small children, and, and God has called you, and yet you seem to have been faithful and obedient, and God has used that and blessed that work to where we are today. And it's an incredible story. So thank you, thank you for sharing what you have. I'm going to just invite Amy to come and sing us a song now before we come to a few more questions and uh, we can begin to, to wrap things up. 
Um, but Amy's going to sing us a song that, that's called God's Not Done With You. And you know, when there are ruins and brokenness, God has a plan. He has a, a design for, for what he's doing in this world. We don't always know what that plan is. And yet as we trust in him, as we are obedient, like you've just shared, he often does remarkable things through our faith. Um, so let's enjoy listening to Amy. Do send your questions then, and we'll come to those in a moment. what he started he's got a plan this is part of it he's gonna finish what he started he's not done god's not done writing your story he's not done With your broken heart and your wounds and your scars, God's not done with you. Even when you're lost and it's hard and you're falling apart, God's not done with you. It's not over, it's only begun. So don't hide, don't run, cause God's not done with you. Stop. 
thank you, Amy. It's lovely to hear those words. And God is not done with us. And we've got just a few more moments now as we begin to wrap things up. And there's a, quite a few questions that have come in here. So just maybe field some of those to you now. Someone asks you how, how this experience has changed or has challenged your faith. Yeah, um, I suppose I've talked a little bit about that already, but it, it's, it's changed it completely um, from a faith that is maybe perhaps more internal, I suppose, to one that is more external. You know, we can all have faith or have a level of faith, something inside us, something which we believe, but turning that, converting that into something which actually makes a difference in this world, building God's kingdom, um, yeah, that's, that, that's something very different. And I suppose what I would like to say, if there's anyone who's listening to this, thinking, well, you know, yeah, maybe my faith is still in that place where it's a little bit more internal, and I think there's more that I could do with it. Um, it starts small, you know? It starts with those little under two kilogram packages of clothes. I mean, that's how it started. But when we're willing to really exercise that faith, it's like a muscle, you know, we have to exercise it and it only grows as we use it. Our muscles will not build up unless we use them. And stepping out in faith, stepping out in faith, even when it seems like the opposite of the way the world would do it, if we're listening to God's voice and we're sure that we're being directed by the Holy Spirit, then what we can end up with as a result is something way more spectacular than we could achieve on our own. Mm, great, thank you. Someone asks, can we help? And are you still collecting clothes? And they say that your story of faith echoes our experiences on the Oak Hall journeys. We've been, we used to help aid in, in Yugoslavia during the civil wars there, so it's a lot of resonance with what you're saying, but are you still collecting now? We're not collecting physical aid anymore, not, not at the moment anyway. We may do again in the future. At the moment, we're focused on um, projects which require uh, financial funding. So we, we have our Orphans and Widows project. We've just opened an outreach center for that. We're actually just doing a bit of refurbishment work in there. Actually, that Orphans and Widows project, it's well-funded at the moment. So um, that's not where we need help with most. We also have, um, we're working on some farming projects at the moment. This is really, really important. This is about feeding the communities within Syria and, um, and also providing employment and livelihoods for people. Um, that's really, really, really important part of rebuilding. We're also just fitting out a medical centre. We bought a two-floor building. Um, and, yeah, we're, we're close. We're getting closer every week to finishing that and being able to open it will be a specialised medical centre. We'll do things like providing renal dialysis there. It's a bit more specialist than, you know, just a set of clinics. Um, I'm really hoping and praying that will be open by the end of the year, so please do pray about that. But also the bigger picture um, is uh, Grace Hospital, which we're working towards. We've, you know, it's been... We're getting closer all the time, but there's just so many hurdles to cross with it, mm. um, you know, before we can start digging the basement out of the ground. <laughs> so, and that's, that's what we're desperate. We're itching to start digging. Mm. Um, but, yeah, so that's... that's we're, we're focused on... So, you know, fundraising... Um, and, you know, it, it's easy for people to think that in these lockdown experiences, you know, you, you kind of have to stop. Actually, I mean, there's an amazing group um, on the Isle of Wight, and all through the summer, they sold ice cream. They made homemade ice cream, and they sold it 
in return for, basically they sold it as donations, so people would donate um, to Samara's Aid, they set up their own fundraising page, which is how people paid, and now, now that summer's over, they've, they've, they've turned their hand to fudge, so they're making fudge <laughs> through winter and for donations, so, you know, there's so many inventive ways, um, and we, we just want to encourage people who feel moved by it to, to look at how they could fundraise in their community. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, thanks for that. So, someone else says here, how do you balance your applaudable conviction to practically love our neighbor with the necessity of sharing the gospel message you know, in word as well as action? How do you balance those? Honestly, I feel that our actions speak louder than our words. Um, Syria is a, a place where you can't just go around sharing the gospel openly with people. Um, you can share the gospel if you're in a church, but outside of that, it's much more complex. Um, so, you know, for our team, our, our team there are a Christian team, and this really, you know, they see what we're doing, and people continually comment, um, the people who receive, they continually comment um, about the work that's being done, and um, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because it's not just, for us, you know, there are no strings attached to the aid that we give. You know, we give simply because we want to love. Um, and the other thing I find quite interesting is that a really big part of sharing the gospel actually happens here through this work and this journey. And the book is, a, you know, that there's a big statement of faith in there about the gospel as well. So it's actually quite interesting because maybe when I started this work, I felt so much more, you know, about reaching out to the people in the Middle East. And I think, well, actually, you know, we need to reach out to the people here in the UK. Mm. So I think that's quite an interesting um, mm. contrast. Yeah. You shared earlier about um, how the doctor you're in contact with sort of grown in his faith through your experience and working with him. And that's a remarkable story. And, and he has a book coming out next year, doesn't he, as well? Yeah, we've written Up From the Ashes, which is being published next Easter. And that's his life experience, his, le- his life story, growing up as a Christian in Syria and then feeling called to stay and serve his people through mm. this terrible war and his experiences, but also his hope for the future for his people. Yeah. Great. A few people have asked about how you, how you communicate with people in Syria. Do you speak the language? Um, we have a couple of very good English speakers over there, <laughs> which is a blessing. I am learning Arabic, but I'm, you know, in your 40s, it's quite hard learning a new language. Um, and Arabic is the second most difficult language in the world behind Mandarin Chinese to, to learn. So I will just wave that banner, I think, above the fact that it's taking me quite a while. I can, I can make really basic conversation, but it's not enough really for me to be able to do the work that needs to be done mm. relying on that yeah well there's we're running out of time now maybe just um just just one more question before we close about what the church is like out there is there a the church in syria and, and how are they coping through the, the war that they've experienced there yes um there are churches in syria um and you know the christian community is significantly depleted in Syria compared with what it was before the war. So many Christians have fled um, to other parts of the world, but there is still there is still a church. There is still a body of believers in Jesus in Syria, and um, I think some of them could really challenge us in our faith here in, in what they've mm. lived through. Mm. Great. Well, God's 
not done yet. You know, he's still working, isn't he? And he has used you and your faith to step out and to, to help the people there. And we pray that he'll continue to do that. I, I can't recommend enough grabbing a copy of this book. And as you leave, uh, Samara has a table over here, actually, where you can pick up a copy of this this morning if you'd like to. She has a contactless payment there for you to, to purchase one. And uh, there's some incredible stories in here, so moving. And you'll be, you'll, I think you'll be... Um, your life will be changed, I can honestly say, I think, by reading this and the experiences that you've seen and the people you've met out there. And it's a real challenge. It's been a challenge to me uh, about how we live out our faith and how we act, you know, into, into the, go into those dangerous places, whatever that may look like for each of us. And um, so, so thank you for writing it. Thank you for sharing with us this morning. And, Such and a um, thank you. It's been great to, to have you with us. I'd love to be able to talk longer with you. As a, as a church, we're, we're putting on a course as well called Christianity Explored. And it's a chance for anybody who would like to explore more about what Christianity is. And we run this every term for six evenings. You can come along. We're going to be doing it on Zoom, this next one, for six Monday nights, just for an hour. And they read through one of the Gospels called Mark, and it's his account of Jesus' life. And you can ask any questions you have. You can explore who, who Jesus was and, and do that in a, in a safe place. So we have a, a course starting on the 2nd of November. And if you'd like to, to join us, then do have a look at our website at oakhall.church, and you can find information there about that co- course coming up. Can I also just recommend that you check out Samara's website, Samara's Aid Appeal, and you can look up that, and you can get a copy of her book. So if you're watching online today, you can go to her website and pick up a copy of the book there as well. And there's a lot more information about the sort of work that they're involved in and how God has really blessed that over these last few years. So thank you all for joining us this morning. Thank you to Amy for singing as well. And, and, and Samara, again, thank you so much for joining us thank and for, for your work. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. So if you'd like to start making your way out when you can, and, and if you do like to speak to Samara just briefly on the way out with her feel free to do so. Thank you.